The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicfliersnz.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. We're going to get a bit of a talk in a minute uh, from Nick Sheehan. So um, what Nick's going to talk about, he uh, he works here at Ardmore um, restoring aircraft and working on aircraft. Um, he's recently come into uh, a project, he's purchased a project and it's Harvard 1068 um, which unfortunately can't be here today because it's uh, it's in the jig in the other hangar over there. Um, so if you get a chance to have a look in the, I think it's in the big hangar, Nick will be able to confirm. Um, it's actually in the jig there, it can't be moved, we hope to get it here. But we've got um, the remains of uh, 909, NZ909 over there. It came from the same place. It came from John Smith's collection um, down in Mapua. And uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, John Smith's collection uh, down there with um, lots of old warbirds that he collected. So uh, I'd just like to introduce Nick Sheehan, uh, who's going to give us a bit of a talk about his, uh, his Harvard project, 1068. Right, right. <laughs> Cheers, Dave. How are you, Good. Now, I don't normally speak to a bunch of people, but we'll give it a go. Um, so, obviously, everybody knows I bought 1068 um, from John Smith's collection, 909 as well, sitting there. We got her back in May last year, brought her up here, um, 
started piecing everything together, got all the bits. Uh, later on when we're done here we can go over and show you guys a few things in the hangar. Uh, I've got the rear fuselage over there with the, all the skins removed. Starting to go through, removal of the corrosion. Um, there's a fair bit down the back unfortunately, probably similar to what Brendan Dare's dealing with the Mustang from all the uh, rats that were living inside them. Other than that, the rest of it's pretty good. Uh, we haven't got to the wings yet. I'd say they might be a bit of a disaster, but we'll, we'll deal with them. Centre section looks alright. Um, haven't really gone through it yet as well. All the control surfaces we've got, we've got some really good ailerons that really don't need much done to them. Um, some new fabric, check this straight, do all that. A um, couple of rudders. Uh, we'll need some serious overhaul. They're well bent from obviously many ground loops at Wigram and uh, Mahakia. Uh, I've got some undercarriage legs. Most of them are pretty good, but most of John Smith's stuff was everything that the Air Force didn't want, basically. It was stuffed, needed a rebuild, broken. Um, hence most of the gear doors and everything. We've all got holes in them, rivets pulled, big cracks. Same with the undercarriage legs, they've all had ground loops broken, bent, all that lovely things. Same with the wings, we've got more of one side than the other and they've all had a tweak at some point from a ground loop. Uh, what else we got? Obviously the, all the bits we've got upstairs in the hangar um, and I believe, well I won't go too far into that but Frank's going Frank's gonna to have a talk about that later. Uh, what else can I say about 68? So basically everybody would, well if you've seen the ADF serials page on the internet you'll know a bit about her history I won't talk about her. She was brought on charge in 1943 with the Air Force up at Hobsonville. Spent her life in the Air Force between Tyree, Wigram, Woodburn, I believe thanks to Dave and he found a logbook entry. Um, she actually flew out of this airfield on that southeast apron in 1943. Uh, she left Ardmore, went down to Wigram, spent most of her, yeah, sorry, doubled up on that, spent most of her life between Tyree and Wigram. She got put into long-term storage in 1945 removed from long-term storage in 1950, I believe it was. Yep, 1950. Flown up to Aharkia for a VHF radio mod, and some of you guys might have seen on the forum I had there regarding that, um, asking a few questions and if anybody knew what they were doing to them, because we've got conflicting evidence of HF and BHF. One of the guys here that's been helping us out has got all that sorted now. So we've got a full ARC-5 radio system for it. It all works. He's spoken to people around the countryside from his hangar, which is kind of scary. I don't know if I want to sit next to that stuff in the aeroplane, but... Um, got all that, and then... So that was obviously pieced together with the AP, one of the APs I had at Aharkia when it went up there. It flew for another couple of years. It had uh, 1956. It had done 3,308.10 hours. They'd rebuilt the wings, both wings, tailplanes, it flew for one more year, so it flew another 300 hours in that one year, and then she got turned to an instructional airframe and sent to Woodburn. We don't know why she got turned to an instructional airframe. Our best guess is they just picked a bunch of them and decided they would do. So anyway, she got sent there. Um, obviously all the guys had a play with it. We've actually found a bunch of names 
inside the aircraft on one of the uh, voltage regulator panels. It's got a bunch of names, 57, 58, Woodburn. Bunch of names, we enjoyed our stay, but we're glad to be leaving. So we've got that history with the aircraft, that's all going to stay with it, we're not going to touch that. Just clear code over the names and it can go back on the aeroplane. So once it left its instructional life, it went to a guy, we believe, down at uh, Cliff, we'll get it right, Cliff Hall, down in Geraldine. He's a farmer. Now, speaking to Philip Burns on the phone last week, first time I got a hold of him actually, he used to own my aircraft. All this history that I'm about to tell you now, I wasn't aware of. So the aircraft was down in Geraldine with this gentleman. He needed to move it around his farm and it didn't have any undercarriage on it, so he dragged it around by the centre section by the rear fuselage, hence the big hole in the rear fuselage that my father and myself are now dealing with. Thank him very much for that. So he put a rope through the rear fuselage. Um, you can basically see on 909, if you have a look at the back end, there's a bit of a hole there to get to the uh, steering cables for the um, tail wheel and everything else, and basically dragged it around his house and tore a big hole through the back end of it. It went from him to a guy called Alan Boyd, who kept the, it would have been uh, 74, 1974, went to a gentleman there. He kept it in the Yoldhurst Museum, so you may have seen a couple of photos I put up that John Saunders actually forwarded me from John Smith's house. Uh, put a few of those photos up, towing it with an old Ford van when Philip Burns purchased it, 1956. Sorry, not 56, 76, I'm not talking about. Um, he owned it for many years, he collected a bunch of parts, there's a couple of photos I'll put up later on the forum so you can all see that, um, actually a photo from a Christchurch newspaper with him sitting next to it in his backyard with all the parts piled up and him sitting on the rear seat. So anyway, he owned it for a few years, it had an engine, he had dreams of starting it up every now and again, taxing it around, make a bit of noise and probably annoy the neighbours. And then. He obviously got told by his wife or whoever it was that it needed to go, so he sold it to John Smith, who graciously said yes, along with the rest of his aeroplanes. So they towed it over there, full of bits, rear fuselage. You imagine with a big hole, an inspection hole, it's just a whole rear fuselage chock with parts. They couldn't fit anything else in there, apparently. So John Smith took that. I've got some photos I'll put up as well. Um, at his place next to the mozzie, sitting out in the yard. So. Obviously from that point on John Smith's had it, um, probably pulled a few things out of it and stored them in boxes and everything else because we're slowly getting all the bits we're missing. And yeah, from then basically obviously we don't know what happened to him, um, unfortunately. So last year in May, uh, me, Frank Parker, Ace Edwards and a few of the other guys went down there and picked all the Harvard bits up. I would say Frank owned, Frank owned 68 for a few weeks until I paid him. <laughs> And um, they didn't get the bank account for a while, but so yeah, and now it's gone on to myself and my father, and yeah, basically that's the history, as much history as I can give you at this point in time, and obviously keep an eye on the forum, I'll put up some more details and photos and try and match everything up. Got any questions? Anything, Dave? Oh, I was going to keep that secret. <laughs> wind you all up and say I'm going to paint it in US Navy colours, it'll get you going. Eh? <laughs> no, it's, um, basically we're going to do it as the uh, an early 50s scheme, the silver and yellow bands, um, same as so I mastered them, 33. Basically painted the same as that. I feel it's something different, 
it had the checkers on it, um, but thought there's a few of them, well we've got 52 of the checkers and I thought this makes something totally different, so it sort of sticks out and it's only fitting because the chipmunk that I'm learning to fly and Liz is one silver and yellow band, so. Yes, I don't have one. <laughs> um, well, obviously, when we get further down the road, there it's going to be many years before we even have to worry about that one. But I've got a couple lined up around Ardmore. A few couple of companies have got some that have been sitting there for ten years. So we'll have to pull them apart and have a look. But they'll obviously be sent away to the states for an overhaul if we can't do it here. Yeah. Anything else? Hopefully that's given you a bit of a rough outline. I've missed a few things, but... Yeah. Well, thank you very much, guys. Hopefully that's a little bit of information for you. <laughs> that's right. Thank you, Nick. Skilling here, um, who hardly needs an introduction really, he's very well known on the air show circuit. Um, and uh, Keith's going to tell us a few stories uh, from flying Harvards back in the day. Uh, he was in the Air Force and also uh, led the um, Roaring Forties Harvard team. Um, and he's also going to give us a, a, a um, few stories from when he flew in England with the Brightling Fighters, well, all over the world with the Brightling Fighters. So uh, please give a nice warm welcome to Keith Skilling. Thanks, Dave. Can you hear me at the back there, all right? Thank you very much. Um, I'm sitting, sorry, I've been a bit tired for the last couple of weeks, so I'm just going to take it easy. And uh, I intend to start off by talking about the Harvard uh, a few of my experiences that you won't have heard of before regarding probably the Roaring Forties um, for 15-20 minutes or so and then if I've got time and you want to carry on we'll talk about the Brightling Fighters for about the same amount of time and I think the Brightling Fighters uh, <clears throat> I'd like to get out to you because we did a hell of a lot of work over in England for five years and we, we toured 13 countries and we did hundreds of, hundreds of shows and displayed to millions of people but it was never reported back here even though it was huge in England. So uh, if I can get some time, I'll give you some Brightening Fighter stuff. I think you'll find it very interesting. Um, as far as the Harvards go, I was interested to look out there now, and four of those Harvards that landed, I, I flew in July 1966 on my wings course. Uh, I started my wings course in, in January, February 66, and we started flying in July. And I've just checked my logbook, which I have here, um, to prevent any arguments, uh, we started flying. My first flight, uh, I'll come back to that, but in July and August, I flew 98, 78, and another one out there as well. I was 66, which is now in, in, in Tauranga. And over my career within Warbirds, I owned two half shares in an aeroplane in Harvards. One was 57, which we built from scratch, from a playground, which is out there today. And 
I bought a share in Harvard 65, which is also out there today. The other important one that I flew in, in, in July, the, in fact, 8th of August, um, was Harvard 99, which I owned outright for up to 10 years. Beautiful airplane. The two most important airplanes uh, starting off with my Harvard career was the very, very first Harvard I ever flew in the Air Force on the 11th of July, 1966, and I didn't even know this until I checked my logbook, was Harvard 92. So war was the first airplane I ever flew. Uh, and a few weeks later I went solo in Harvard 83, and Harvard 83 now is part of the uh, backup for the Harvard historic flight, the uh, Air Force historic flight at Ahakia. And I was sent solo by a guy called Peter Adamson, he was a brilliant instructor, and a few of you here will know him. Uh, and I was very, very lucky to have him as my instructor. And also to follow me through in the Air Force. I, uh, when I was on Bristol Freighters, the Mighty Bristol, he was OC of uh, Three Squadron Tacti. And then when I, just before I left the Air Force, I was OC uh, One Squadron, the Andover Squadron, and he was my uh, transport flight commander or transport commander in those OC Transport Wing. So he looked after me right the way through my Air Force career and he finally went on to be Chief of Air Staff and we still keep in touch and I had great delight in ringing him um, four or five years ago and said, you know what happened today, Peter? We, you, you sent me solo in Harvard 8-3. So he was, uh, he was quite moved to hear that. So I flew to Harvard quite a lot in the Air Force, of course, PDS, and I went back as an instructor, learning to fly to be an instructor uh, at CFS. I was just having a talk to Barry Mitchell here today. He was one of, he appeared in my logbook teaching me how to be an instructor. And then on to PDS, where we had Harvards, of course. And then I went to instruct on 14 Squadron. And we had a couple of Harvards here as, uh, as FAC aircraft. So I had quite a long involvement with the Harvard and the Air Force. Then I left the Air Force and uh, joined Air New Zealand and went sailing. And not interested in Harvard's or any other, any other planes outside work. But Trevor Bland set up Warbirds, of course, with Harvard 92, so I joined as an inaugural member. And a few months later, they sold the Harvards, or some Harvards are being sold again, and John Lamont grabbed me in the crew room at Wellington and said, you've got to buy a share in a Harvard. And I said, I'm not interested. And he said, you've got to buy a share in a Harvard, otherwise it'll go to uh, Australia. I said, how much? And uh, he said, 1,200 bucks. So I bought a, a one-tenth share in 65 for 1,200 bucks. And I had a share in that airplane for over 20 years. Uh, wonderful fun. So I didn't do much flying then because I was really involved in yachting. And then one day I got a call from Bruce Donnelly, who some of you may remember. And he said, we're going to expand the Harvard team, the aerobatic team. Could you uh, mind coming along and, and joining us? I said, well, that sounds pretty good fun. So I came out here to Ardmore, and Ross Ewing gave me a half an hour check out in the Harvard. I hadn't flown one for seven or eight years. And then I got in with Bruce and with two Harvards, and we did some formation loops for 45 minutes to an hour. Now, I'd never done formation loops officially before. Um, there's a myth going around. I was never, ever in the red checkers. Um, I was a truckie, and truckies weren't allowed in the red checkers. You had to be a nuck, or a helicopter pilot, or someone important. 
So I was never allowed in the red checkers. However, I made up for it by um, getting into the Harvard team here. And at the start, the Harvard team was uh, Ross Ewing and John Denton, John Lamont, Bruce Dunley, and myself. And we had a wonderful um, year, a couple of years, flying around the countryside doing air shows and so on and so forth. And then we, we realised we hadn't got a name, so we needed a name rather than the Harvard Formation Team. So we were sitting in the bar over there at the old, old Warbirds hangar, one of the old half-round hangars over there one night. And there's an old boy called Charlie Liddell, who some of you may remember. He uh, had an Avro 504 here in bits and pieces. And he said, I reckon you guys could, should, should call yourselves the Roaring Forties because you're all around about 40, the airplane's around about 40. And, and it's an appropriate name. So that was around about 1983, 84, we became the Roaring Forties. Shortly after that, we ran into a bit of strife because it was costing us a lot of money to go to all these air shows. Uh, I was a co-pilot on Friendship in those days on about 12 grand a year and it was costing us about $1,000 each every air show we went to. By the time we paid our share of hireage of the aeroplane, the fuel, accommodation, transit and so on and the air show was giving us nothing back. So we pulled out and we said we've had enough now unless you start paying for us we're not going to do any more. Well, that didn't go down well at all with anybody, and we received an awful lot of bad press. Who are these arrogant sods wanting money to fly aeroplanes? Um, but it just, got, it just got financially ruinous. So for two years, we, we didn't do any displays, and it was Tim Wallace who invited us in 1989 back down to Wanaka for the very first Warbirds over Wanaka, or Warbirds on Parade it was called, and he paid us a few bucks. And that's where it started. You cannot run these aeroplanes um, for free. So we now, I, I presume the Roaring Forties are still getting some sort of money to help out, which is, which is really, really needed. A couple of highlights um, from the Roaring Forties. I, well, I spent eight years in the Forties. I led it for three. And, and I'll CFI here for seven years as well. Uh, highlights, uh, the first one was really, if you were in the Air Force, you couldn't be in the team. Ex-Air Force trained, you couldn't be in the team. And I decided we had some pretty good pilots here, some pretty good GA pilots. So we selected um, three GA pilots, Robbie Booth, John Greenstreet and Steve Taylor. And we worked them up into the team. And uh, they, were, they were wonderful and and the team then became a civilian team, basically, with, with those guys flying it, and they never let us down. They were wonderful. Sadly, John was killed here at a practice one day, um, and that's another story. Another highlight was we took the team to Australia in 1991 for the 70th anniversary of the RAAF, and that was really, really enlightening. We got to Australia, and we were borrowing their aircraft, and their CASA, their Civil Aviation Authority, would not allow them to fly dual or carry passengers in the aeroplanes or do any aerobatics in the Harvard, which to us was patently ridiculous. So we worked on them over there. We had a couple of weeks working up and so on. Got the aeroplanes up to our standard, how we, how we had liked them and so on. And by the time we did our display in, in Richmond, 
We were carrying people in the back of the aeroplanes. We were doing aerobatics, and we did a complete show over the Sydney Harbour by the bridge with passengers on board. So the Australians had changed their mind. Uh, that was probably one of the highlights. Another highlight was I went to a place called Kenosha. Being CFI and leader in the, leader of the Roaring Forties, I went to Kenosha for the NATA. Now the NATA is the North American Trainer Association, and they're a big organisation, a bit like Warbirds, but they just deal solely in the Harvard in the T28. And Kenosha is just south of Oshkosh, so it was a workup for the um, for the Oshkosh arrival. And I was lucky enough to meet a lot of these guys and fly in their formation, and one of them we flew in was 75 aircraft, 75 Harvards. So that was quite an experience. I had a very interesting experience here one night. A chap came up to me and he said, are you a New Zealander? And I said, yes. And he said, are you, are you in the New Zealand Air Force? And I said, I used to be. And he said, the New Zealand Air Force wrecked my airplane. <clears throat> and I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, I designed the Harvard. Now, my God, I wished I knew his name. Um, he gave me his card, long lost. He said the Air Force, the New Zealand Air Force, detuned the ailerons in the Harvard. The Harvard was designed, but technically, with a throw of 45 degrees up and 45 degrees down, and also a servo tab, which made the ailerons more effective. So the Harvard then had a wonderful rate of roll. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our Air Force of the time decided that the young fellows flying these things would twist the wings by using too much aileron. So they detuned the wing from 45 degrees to 30 degrees. And, he's, and he quite rightly said it wrecked my airplane. Now if you'd fly in the Harvard you'd never know. Um, and all our Harvards out here have got 30 degrees so they've been wrecked. And unless you've been in a Harvard with the full throw or get out of a nicely harmonised aeroplane like the B-40 or the Spitfire back into the Harvard, it becomes a dray very sadly. And so sorry to any Parvard owners or pilots here at the moment. When I got 99, I bought the mod to, to retune it back to original specifications. And it absolutely transformed the aeroplane. <clears throat> and it was always used... <clears throat> excuse me, in the number five position of the Harvard team because it was so bloody good with ailerons for rolls and flick manoeuvres and so on. And I couldn't get the likes of Gavin Tathui or John Peterson out of it. Um, it transformed the aeroplane. And when I sold it, an Australian guy came over here, Steve Deeth, who was the uh, leader of the warbirds over there, and he said, oh, yeah, mate, I've heard all about that. These bloody ailerons, you know, no change. He got out of the aeroplane and he was absolutely flabbergasted how, how good it was. Now, I've told every single pilot here, or owner of the Harvards, change them. Sadly, no change. Um, to their loss, really. Uh, another interesting thing you might be interested in, I'm not allowed to tell you about, but, so don't pass it outside this room, please, or put it on the blog. Um, Robbie Booth flew with us. You might have heard of Robbie. He was a very, very well-known racing car driver and a bloody good pilot, but he only had one leg. Um, but he flew the Harvard and the Sea Fury really, really well, and the Venom, I think, as well. It didn't affect him at all. And one day we were doing a show over Wellington for the local car races in those days, the street races. And it was nasty Wellington day, 35, 40 knots, which is as bad as it gets in terms of turbulence. 
And we started off with what they call a Vic Loop, the same as the, the 40s are doing now with a five-ship formation. And we dived down over the harbour, and Lamont was leading, and then Robbie was beside him, number three, and I'm number five, doing the solos on the outside. And we pulled up into this loop, and we got a hell of a bang of turbulence. We really did, and there was Harvards all over the sky. And we recovered and came out the bottom, and there's a bit of mumbling, and John said, I think we'll call it off. So we called it off. And went back and landed at Wellington in 40 knots in a harbour, which was known, it was quite a feat. And Robbie came wobbling over to me with his one leg, and he showed me his helmet, and he said, look at this. And I said, goodness gracious, there's a huge gouge in, the, in, the, um, in his helmet. And I said, how on earth did that happen? And he said, well, because I can't use my knee like you can, I loosen my lap strap, and I use my whole hip to use the rudder. So I've got a very loose lap strap. And when we hit that big bump, he said, I crashed into the roof and took this huge ding in my helmet. And I said, goodness me, we did a good job. And he said, no, that wasn't the worst part. He said, the worst part was my leg fell off. <laughs> so there he is flying around the loop, one hand flying in one hand, trying to put his leg back on again. But I'm not allowed to tell that story. Um, those were the good times in the Roaring Forties. Uh, we had a few bad times. Um, and... Uh, one I won't go into at the moment because we're running out of time. Um, so what else we've got to say about that? Roaring 40s. That's about it really. Um, not much else to talk about. I think that's enough for the Harvards. Um, I've had a wonderful life in them and they're a beautiful airplane and they're as good today as they were when they come out of the Air Force, I'm sure. So have we got enough time to talk about Brightening Fighters, Dave? Okay. And in 1994... I was, uh, I'd been flying Tim's course here and the Roaring Forties and, and, you know, and CFI here and got to know Ray and Mark Hanna very well and Stephen Gray from the Fighter Collection. And I was doing a lot of work in England at the time when I was on the 747, backwards and forwards. And I was over there on holiday one day and they called me up and said, we're very short of a pilot this weekend. Would you mind coming and helping us out? And I said, no problem at all. And I ended up, it was the 50th anniversary of D-Day. So we took 12 fighters from Duxford down to Falaise in France, down to the D-Day beaches. And I got thrown in Stephen Gray's Corsair and went down with Ray and two Corsairs. And um, it was really uh, chucked in at the deep end. Um, and I survived apparently, so I got invited back regularly. In fact, I've been invited back every year now for the last 25 years. And last year was the first year I haven't gone over there and flown. So because by then I was really reasonably well known, I got a phone call from Ray one night. And he said, we're setting up a team called the Brightling Fighters, sponsored by Brightling Watch Company. Would you like to come over and join us? You'll have to come over for five months. And I said, I'd love to. What do I get? And he said, well, you get a watch and probably a, a typewriting and a sea ferry. I said, that'll be worth it. Colin Glasgow was a OC ops or ops control, but I've forgotten the name right now, a flight ops manager for Air New Zealand. And he was my immediate, well, big boss. And I had to get him to approve the leave without pay for five months. And Colin used to own a hangar over here. And him and I and Keith Trillo had a share. We owned that little Fokker triplane for a long time. So he gave me a contract I couldn't refuse, which was, we won't touch you for six months, and you can come back in one day. So that was a pretty good contract, I thought. And off I went in 1999, and we had five, five months flying around, in, uh, around Europe and England. 
And the team consisted then of four different aeroplanes, uh, Ray Hanna in the P-40, me behind him, number four in the Corsair, and we had a guy called Andy Gent flying a Spitfire and Mark Hanna in the, in the, the 109. And it was very hard to get a team sorted out with the airplanes with completely different power settings and, and, and requirements. But we did. We, we had a, a good display worked out. And in fact, we won that year at Beacon Hill. We won the trophy for the best display. We beat the Red Arrows. So that was a, a feather in our cap. Sadly, at the end of uh, 99, Mark was killed in Sabadell. Um, very, very sad, but that's another story. And uh, we thought it would be all over. So, but Brightling said, no, we want you to continue for the next few years. Are you interested? And we said, yeah, sure. So we then set up a new team for the 2000 year. Um, Ray in the P40, me in the Corsair, and a chap called Nigel Lamb, uh, flying number three in the Mustang. Now, Nigel was eight times English aerobatic champion and also owned the Rothmans aerobatic team. And then we had Lee Proudfoot in the number two slot flying the, the Spitfire. And and I'd, I'd rate Lee as the, one of the best World War II pilots or Warbird pilots ever flown with. So we had a bloody brilliant team. And I was the bunny. Those guys all had display authorities down to zero feet and I was 30 feet so I held them back but we seldom went below 30 feet anyway but they never let me forget it and in our stupid rules here of 100 feet just drive me around the bend and I occasionally forget that and go a bit lower um, so we set up this new team with those four people we had an eight minute display because we had a lot of experience in the team and eight minutes is the best display time any shorter it's a bit too short any longer. You get a bit bored, people start buying ice creams. So that was our team, and we, 20% of our work was going to air shows and doing displays, and we did hundreds of them all around Europe, as I say, 13 countries, and 80% of it was PR. We, were, we weren't there to be looked at, we were there to sell watches. So I'll just give you three quick examples of what we would do, apart from just going to an ordinary air show. Um, one example is the very first thing we did was in 1999, the World Watch Conference, or what do they call it, um, show in Basel in Switzerland. They have huge watch sales. And that's where they sell the watches for the year. I learned a hell of a lot about watches, believe me, <clears throat> over five years. And that's where they sell all their watches. They've got this huge convention centre and everybody has their own um, display. You know, Casio, Rolex, Breitling, and away they go. And they've all got their own stand. Now, it's not a stand like the Easter show. The Breitling stand was four storeys high within this complex. And at the top of the Breitling stand, there was a full-size Gripen hanging from the roof. And it was invitation only. So that's the sort of thing we're at. Now, we took five fighters over there to Basel, <clears throat> landed them and lined them up in a, um, a line. And they were, we, the colour scheme of Brightling is yellow. If you buy a yellow, if you buy a Brightling, you get a yellow box. So the, paint, the noses were all painted yellow and we had 
um, the right-wing fighter's badge on the side of the aeroplane. So there was nothing apart from the camouflage, apart from the yellow and the nose and the badge. Lined them all up on the tarmac, and then they put artificial grass around them, put a huge marquee over the top, and down the other end they had a dance floor and, and, and tables set up for dinner. During the watch show, Brighton got their 80 top salespeople from throughout the world, put them on two buses in the evening, brought them out to Brightling, and it had all been secret up until then. There was no such thing as a Brightling fighter. So it was absolutely top secret. These people got off the bus, walked into the marquee, mood lighting, the yellow noses, and we were all standing there in our bloody Zoom suits and looking pretty. And they were introduced, uh, Teddy Schneider, who owns Brightling, introduced ladies and gentlemen, the Brightling fighters. So these people all came through and looked at the airplanes and spoke to us. We had five pilots there, and we had two patrons worth mentioning. One was a guy called Jacques Remlinger, who was a free French pilot, Battle of Britain, during World War II. Amazing, amazing guy. Um, and the first guy back to land in Europe after, after D-Day. There's a plaque on the beach at D-Day. And the other chap was a guy called Don Strait, who flew during World War II, and his claim to fame for the modelers, he flew a um, Mustang called Jersey Jerk, and his claim to fame was he shot down two, two six twos in one day. Went on to be a general in the Air Force. And if you look at Grant Wilson's stairman here, you'll see on the side that it's dedicated to Don, Don Strait. Amazing man. They were our patrons. So in come these 80 people from all around the world, look at the airplanes, go and sit down, have a lovely slap-up meal. It's a bit of dancing with, with um, World War II, We'll Meet Again type band. And nine minutes later, they left. So all of that effort for 90 minutes, next day it was all turned down and we went home. So they, it was purely promotional. The sort of thing we would do to promote um, Brightling at shows, I'll just give you two examples. And the first one was the Paris Air Show. We did three Paris Air Shows. We never flew as a team there. Um, we had all the airplanes lined up again with their yellow noses and, and Ray Hanna couldn't stand the French and da 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 so I ended up flying there all the time we just did solos horrible place to fly Le Bourget because there's nowhere to go if the engine stops it's completely built up so Muggins was given the job for that but the place to be at Le Bourget was the Brightling Chalet and it was a huge chalet probably half the size of this hangar on top of the roof of a hangar Grass, palm trees, stunning. Um, lovely looking hostesses and all that sort of carry on. And VIPs were all invited from around Europe to that particular um, chalet. And truly that was the place to be. But during the day what they did was they look at the fighters down below, the five fighters or four fighters parked down below. They would take four at a time and take them down to the end of the, end of the aerodrome put them in the Brightling Fighters MD Notar helicopter, take them all around Paris, down the Seine, round Eiffel Tower, to a place called Pontoir, which is an aerodrome just to the north of Paris, <coughs> where um, Ryanair and those sort of airlines go into. A uh, little regional aerodrome. And there, we had another little marquee set up with uh, two stewards, and we'd, we'd land these people there, four, four people, ladies and females, big and small, young and old, and they would get another drink and a, and a canapé or something. And then we had two Mustangs there, 
put them in uh, the back seat of the Mustangs and go and give them a 20 minutes formation. And then come back and land, get rid of those, take the next two, and by then there's more helicopter guys coming through. And we did that all day. So it was really purely promotional flying for for um, brightening people, brightening salespeople and, and agents and so on. And once a year, Brightling would hire a whole aerodrome in Switzerland. And for three years, we hired a place called Buox, which is a big uh, ex-Swiss Air Force base, um, two big long runways where they used to have the, their mirages. And it's where the Pilatus are made, Pilatus porters are made in the hills beside the aerodrome there. Um, and Mount Pilatus is right there. Now they'd hire that aerodrome for two weeks and they would get once again their, their top salesmen and their agents from all around the world in one busload of 40 people. And that 40 people on the first day would go to the Grenchen um, factory where they made the, the Breitlings, the, the watches, and they would be shown around the, the, the Breitling factory for the day. And there was a uh, Spitfire on the roof of that place, believe it or not. And then the next day, they'd bring them out to Burox. And at Burox, there would be 16 aeroplanes, all part of the Breitling setup. The, the four Breitling fighters, the, the Breitling jet team, um, six of those, six uh, L-39s. The Breitling Eagles, which are an Italian mob, they were the hardest case you ever came across, and they were in Sukhoi 32s. Broke every rule in the book. You think we're bad. Those guys were phenomenal. And we had a helicopter with a brightening thing on the side of it. And a Pilatus Porter for parachute dropping. Completely red with brightening on the side of it. And two aerobatic people, one called Xavier de Laperon, who was world champion. And he was the most amazing pilot. He was in a Sukhoi 28. And 80% of his show was below the stall. You'd get airborne and just stop and wave around and do a few turns and a few flicks and to watch him was it's just incredible. So if you ever want to um Google Xavier Lapron, he was phenomenal. And his girlfriend was Brigitte de La Salle and she was European champion. And and the plan was these people would arrive and then would all do a show. We'd do an eight-minute show in the valley, and then the jets would do theirs, and then they'd do a parachute drop, then Xavier, and then, you know. So it was a 45-minute, one-hour flying display, purely with brightening. And then another cup of coffee and a few um, beers or whatever they had. And then they all had the chance of doing two things. They could fly with the brightening fighters, with the jet team, go for a ride in the helicopter at the top of Mount Pilatus, or do a parachute drop. So they had all these options, these people. So wonderful, wonderful promotion. Now we didn't take them for we didn't take them for riding in the Brightling Fighters. We took we had either two Mustangs there, two Harvards, and quite often we had um, two two seed Hooker Hunters. So for these kids from all around the world getting rides in his aeroplane was something else. So that's just a very, very, very brief touch on what we did with the Brightening Fighters for five years. It was a hugely wonderful experience. It was boys' own stuff for me. Four pilots charging all around Europe with four aeroplanes. And we always flew the same aeroplane in the team, but when we transited somewhere, we swapped aeroplanes. And there's always an argument that night, the night before, who was going to fly what? You're too old, you flew it last week, you're a cripple, and that sort of carry on. So I ended up getting more flying in the rest of the airplanes of the Corsair. 
Um, so that's a very, very brief outline on the Breitling fighters. And I'll just finish up saying that it all started with a Harvard. Thank you. <laughs>